This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks very much uh, for, for this great afternoon uh, to all the speakers. And uh, I'm especially grateful for, uh, to Dan Lieberman for having set the stage with a lot of carnage and meat eating. Because the molecules I talk about today have to do with vertebrates and what we eat and what happens to it in our bodies. So this afternoon, I'd like to share an idea about a way that a molecule could be driving speciation and, and share some evidence for it in vivo, not in primates, but in mice. I'd like to start with, by acknowledging the people who've done some of the heavy lifting, including Fang Ma, who's back in Chengdu, a former lab member, and Darius Gaderi, and my team here, especially Stefan Springer and Miriam Cohn, as well as my collaborators, uh, Ajit Varki and, and his team. The kelp there in the background is actually an analogy I use when I talk about the glycocalyx. Every living life, every living cell has a sugar coat called glycocalyx, which consists of glycolipids and glycoproteins that completely cover the cell and give it its molecular identity. These molecules swing around very much like the kelp in the ocean right here. And if we make ourselves hundreds of millions of times smaller and land on a cell, one of my favorite cells, a mammalian sperm cell, we would see something that reminds us of one of these kelp forests. These are the glycolipids and glycoproteins. All of them share short sugar chains on them. Each little sugar is about one nanometer big. And what they share is that most of these chains terminate in a sugar called sialic acid that helps define the identity of the cell type and it tells the body that this is a self-cell. So sialic acid can be thought of as a very potent self-signal. <clears throat> you can visualize them here with an antibody, and you see the entire surface of this sperm, its payload, so to speak, is the haploid genome in blue, and the surface of the, of the sperm is completely covered in sialic acids. To go back to the kelp analogy, Macrocystis kelp has these big terminal bulbs that help it float, and it defines the outer edge, the molecular frontier of every cell. Uh, that's what you can think of uh, as sialic acids. They're very important because they're telling the body that this is self, and they play roles in fertilization, in gestation, in development, including during pregnancy. Peter Menawar, many years ago, coined the phrase the immunological paradox of mammalian pregnancy, where a female, a mother, is gestating an individual that is genetically not identical to her within her body in a very intimate contact. The interface between the fetal cells of the trophoblast and the mother includes these silic acids, these sugar molecules found on cell, sur on cell surfaces of all vertebrates. This matters. It can be quite dramatic. This young fellow here was born in 1963, and he had a problem. His mother was type O and had a lot of antibodies against type A blood and had a former son, and his father was type A. So what happened during the pregnancy is that the antibodies that his mother were making passed through the placenta and almost killed him. He was born with massive uh, <coughs> hemolytic disease of the newborn that had only been described a couple of years earlier, and it's only because he was given two complete blood transfusions that he can stand here today and give a talk. So sugars and mismatches in sugars are really important. 
But I would like to propose that there is another immunological paradox, and it's the one about mammalian fertilization. How do sperm manage to survive this journey from insemination to the place of fertilization way up in the ampulla of the oviduct? If you think back when you were a sperm, the reproductive tract of your mother was about the equivalent of six kilometers. We're back to running. Of course, hundreds of millions of potential ewes were inseminated, but only one made it up all the way to the ampulla. And that is partly due to a massive influx of immune cells of the mother upon insemination that take out and actively kill, potentially select, most of the sperm. Only a few hundreds make it to the oviduct, where they capacitate, they start sprinting, galloping, and one of them meets the egg and fertilizes it. So females may be scrutinizing and even selecting sperm. Why would they do that? Well, one thing they may have to look out for is, is it the correct species? Male mammals are quite famous for trying to mate with anything that is shaved roughly like that. (laughs) But the female might be interested in, in some readout of the fitness of the male who made the sperm, or in the fact that the male is genetically compatible, And also, more importantly, that the sperm is still functional. Wasting one precious egg on a sperm that already lost its acrosome and is not not fit to make a a surviving embryo would be a terrible waste. So I come back to the sialic acid on the surface of cells. And in most mammals, the two most common sialic acids are called N-acetylneuraminic acid and N-glycolineuraminic acid, AC and GC for short. What is interesting is that there's an enzyme that modifies AC to GC. And humans are natural knockouts. This is work by Ajit Varki's um, uh, laboratory that over the last 15 years has found the mechanism. We are knockout for a gene. There was an insertion of a selfish piece of DNA that destroyed the gene. We cannot make the GC anymore. All of us in this room are pure AC on our cell surfaces. So the cell surface of a human differs dramatically from that of most other mammals. So with all our close-living ape relatives, we share AC. But because of a mutation that is quite well-timed with three different methods, <clears throat> using coalescence, molecular clock, and the, alu, the type of alu element that is present, we know that this mutation happened between two and three million years ago. <clears throat> and we know that it causes us to only have one type of sugar on our cell surface, of sialic acid. <clears throat> now you'd think it's a tiny, tiny change in, in DNA, Why could this be a big deal? I haven't mentioned that your average cell has tens to hundreds of millions of this molecule. So a tiny change in your DNA changes the flavor, the molecular flavor of your cells in a big way. A human cell would appear in one flavor and a non-human cell in a completely different flavor. What could have driven this? You're looking at a model of a cell surface of a red blood cell, which make up over 80% of all your cells, and they're targeted by some of the most important pathogens we know for humankind, such as falciparum malaria. This molecule, encircled, is glycophorin A that carries a lot of sialic acid, which malaria uses to get into the host. So a couple of years back, with Ajit, we commented on the fact that it is known that the apes that still make most of our great ape cousins sick, they use the sialic acid that we don't have anymore. They cannot infect us. So one possible driving force for the loss of the sugar initially might have been to escape a pathogen such as an ancestral malaria. We got a nice break. Unfortunately, 
much, much later in the Neolithic with agriculture and, and the expansion of, of Anopheles mosquito species, malaria caught up with us with a vengeance and is now highly specific for the sugar we have on human cells. Now, interestingly, as we've heard, somewhere along the line to Homo, we became top predators and we regularly engage in hunting or scavenging or a combination of both. And when you eat this non-human sugar, you actually incorporate it and you start making an immune reaction to it. So after having lost the sugar, we started getting regularly immunized to it and making antibodies. And there is ongoing work showing that this is incorporated, is relevant for, for, for modern Homo sapiens. All of us who eat red meat, which is the biggest source of this non-human sugar, continue to immunize ourselves and to incorporate it. So several years back, we asked, well, could it be that if sperm differs so dramatically, <clears throat> that a change in cell surface sugars could actually have been involved in this reproductive incompatibility that I was unlucky enough to suffer from when I was born? That was ABO blood groups, very unusual, a rare case. But this would have been a very powerful point, <clears throat> a way to immunize the mother against the sugar she doesn't have. Could this have been involved, this mutation, the fixation of it, <clears throat> could that have been driven? Could, have, could that have driven the speciation along the lineage to, to modern Homo? So one thing we could do at the time is <clears throat> obtain chimpanzee sperm in a non-invasive fashion, I shall not go into details, <laughs> and expose those chimpanzee sperm to human sera with antibodies and show that they die. But the reverse is not true. We could also show that complement gets deposited on sperm. It seems to be a, an antibody-driven killing mechanism in human sera. Luckily, by then, there was a model mouse that carried the same mutation that we humans carry. You can see that the, uh, the wild-type mouse has the non-human sialic acid on its sperm. The knockout mouse doesn't. And so we said, well, <clears throat> let's use these mice to prove whether this mechanism can function. And we could show that, yes, the immunized mice would, would have, make antibodies that stick to the sperm. The two groups of females we mated with different males had similar comparable levels. And there were antibodies, very importantly, in the female reproductive tract of these mice. So that would be a way to model female immunity being hostile to the ancestral molecule. And after hundreds of mating experiments, <clears throat> effectively the only group of pairings where there was a 30% reduction in fertility was with females lacking a sugar, <clears throat> making antibodies against a sugar that was on sperm that was mismatched. Now, 30% <clears throat> reduction in, in fertility is that important. Could that drive speciation? And this is where Steven Springer came in and... <clears throat> came up with an instantaneous model of selection with payoff matrices of all possible combination between the genotypes of males and females. Interestingly, this process could not start by sexual selection. This is a type of sexual selection, female immunity, punishing sperm for carrying the wrong sugar. But if a pathogen were to introduce and favor the mutation, very quickly, as the frequency of the mutation rises in the females, Males get rewarded by also losing the sugar because they gain compatibility. <clears throat> and after a certain moment, you can cross a threshold from negative selection in females, in pink, to a net positive selection in black. In males, as soon as there is enough females that lack the sugar, it is worth losing the sugar so that you gain compatibility. 
we modeled the effect of both <coughs> the, 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 uh, the degree of incompatibility and promiscuity. And it, it, it showed that <coughs> with a promiscuity of about three matings per ovulation, so a female would have to mate between two and five males for each egg, and a frequency of only about 0.4%, which is you know, one in 25 females would be homozygous. This process would become a directional selection fixing the alley. So in a cartoon version, the idea is that pathogens are permanently driving the sugars on your cell surfaces. That's why we have blood groups. But usually these changes go back and forth. And they generate selection that oscillates and results in polymorphisms that do not fix. But if this, this process comes under sexual selection via female antibodies against molecules on the sperm, you have directional selection that rapidly fixes the loss of function mutation. So what we pro propose might have happened somewhere in the past and possibly at the beginning of the genus Homo is a very important pathogen driving changes in the glycocalyx of the host. Some of the hosts would have been homozygous. They would have looked very different. The females by virtue of their new mode of life with much hunting and contact with other animal products would have been immunized against this sugar. That immunity also protected them from infection from these bugs, but it would preclude optimal compatibility with males that still had the ancestral molecule, eventually driving a part two population even within the same <coughs> sympatric environment, so as a model for sympatric speciation of ancestral hominids. The hope now is to get fossil material to actually look for incorporated monosaccharides as far back as three or four million years and find out which lineages still had both sugars as opposed to which lineages already had just one sugar and would make better candidates for our ancestors. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.